Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hello, and welcome to Good One, a podcast about jokes. I'm your host, Jesse David Fox. Uh, Happy holidays. Uh, I am currently on island time, but as a holiday gift, we have a fun thing for you, and it is an interview my colleague Nick Hua did at Vulture Festival with Ryan Johnson. Johnson's Glass Onion, the second in the Knives Out series, premiered on Netflix a few days ago, so I thought this would be a fun listen. Johnson, of course, is the director of such films as Brick, Looper, and freaking Star Wars Episode Eight: The Last Jedi. Ryan also created with Natasha Leone a Columbo-esque Mystery of the Week series called Poker Face, which comes out on Peacock in January. Glass Onion is arguably the funniest of his films, so it's a nice fit for this podcast. But also, fun fact, I love mysteries. It's like one of the things about me. I love mysteries and heists. Uh, end of list. One thing, this conversation happened before the release of Glass Onion, so Ryan is very careful about spoiling things. So don't worry, he doesn't reveal, as they say, who done it. So here is Ryan Johnson, live from Vulture Festival. <laughs> A whole new tune. Freaking Miles, man. Genius. That first one's a Fibonacci sequence. Ma! How could you hand off of that? Oh, oh, oh! 47 for sure. That's the atomic number for silver. Are you, are you sure that's silver? That's silver. So this is it. All together now. One, two, three. Dear friends, my beautiful disruptors, my closest inner circle. We could all use a moment of normalcy, and so you are cordially invited for a long weekend on my private island. Where we will celebrate the bonds that connect us, and I hope your puzzle-solving skills are whetted. Ah! Because you will also be competing to solve the mystery of my murder. Travel details to come. Please forward any dietary restrictions. Love and all my kisses, Miles. Ma, where's my spear gun? I gotta pack. Babe, get packed. What's that? I don't know. Hello, hello. Uh, good evening. Good evening. Click. 
Thanks for coming out. Uh, I am Nick Kwa. I'm a critic for Vulture. And this is Ryan Johnson. Hey, guys. Thank you for coming. Hello. Beautiful crowd. Uh, just to level set a little bit, uh, who here has seen Knives Out? But also, who has not seen Knives Out? Just raise your hand. It's fine. No shame. No shame. Yeah, so, uh, sorry. But, you know, you should go see it. It's, yeah, we'll, we'll hold back on that, though. Um, how you doing? I'm so, I'm so good. Thank you guys again for coming out. This is really cool. So we're here to talk. And, and Nick, thank you for doing this. Oh, of course, of course. Um, so we're here to talk about Glass Onion, the uh, sequel. Do you call? Do would you consider a sequel? I don't think like it's a, a sequel. No. The uh, second part, the second installment, the second entry. This has been an ongoing conversation with Netflix. How to kind of like make sure people know that it's a continuation. That and the way I think of it, and this was, and I guess this is a good starting point. Like the whole thing. This whole thing came from me loving Agatha Christie and yeah. me growing up loving her books and loving the movies made from her books and so I was thinking of it the same way that she did her books where it's yeah. the same detective but that's kind of but the timeline is so what ambiguous yeah the timeline shouldn't even matter I think and so it, it, it's really a whole new cast a whole new mystery it's just kind of its own its own deal and hopefully also its own reason for being yeah. uh, like it's there's it's not just turning the Turning the grinder handle on another another one of these. I have so many questions related to that, but I'm gonna sort of put that aside for I'm now. Move my um, chair back. I feel like oh yeah, I'm, go for I'm it. sitting way in front of you. It's making me. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> so just to set this up, um, Glass Onion, uh, the other movie from the Knives House, uh, Knives Out. Uh, I just want to make it as verbally <laughs> awkward for you as possible. To I, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. I've already my paycheck today. Uh, so it. So it, I. I've seen it uh, because it's a murder mystery because of the nature of Glass Onion uh, much of the delight of the movie is in its many 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 surprises the kinds of surprises are also many fold so we will only speak of it in extremely general terms <laughs> it's going to be so frustrating <laughs> so I know Every, everyone involved, this is not going to well, be... We'll just yeah. talk about Knives Out if that's the case. Uh, but I just want to, so let's start with Knives Out 2019 Knives Out The Maiden Knives Out um, since it's come out, you know, it's, it's critically claimed, uh, widely beloved by uh, folks who are really, really into the murder mystery genre and also people who are not super familiar with the murder mystery genre. It is a meme machine. Uh, I believe I saw two Chris <laughs> Evans's with the sweaters oh, the this past Halloween. Halloween. Um, and I was just sort of curious, like, were you surprised to the strong response to the first movie? Yeah, I mean, when so when I sat down to write this one, I was coming off of make of, of the Star Wars movie that I did, and it was it was a little oh thank you thank you <laughs> uh, thanks guys uh, and so yeah I, I I I but all to say I was coming off of like this big movie that was obviously the biggest thing probably I'll I'll ever do in my life, and it was like this huge and and and. Uh, even my friend, when I sat down and wrote this murder mystery, the genre was something that, um, I mean, there were good examples of it being done, but it wasn't something that was really at the forefront of anything. It was kind of something that had been lying there for a bit and kind of getting a little dusty. And um, even friends of mine who really enjoyed the script when I showed it to them were kind of like, oh, are you sure you just want to do a murder mystery? Like it was kind of the idea that I was kind of like spending this, uh, that, that I could, take a bigger swing but I, I just love this genre so much and I I also I having grown up 
watching, like remembering sitting around the TV with my family and watching Death on the Nile with Peter Ustinov or watching Evil Under the Sun or um, and just feeling like that's like the most fun a movie can possibly be. You have like an all-star cast. You've got, you know... Uh, you know, Maggie Smith and David Niven, and you've got, you know, it, 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 just every single new face that pops up, it's like you're leaning forward. Uh, and the comedy in it and the fun of it, and I just thought this is something that, um, I don't know, this is something I know I'll enjoy, but I, I had no idea whether uh, audience still audiences still wanted that. So, no, all to say it was a big surprise. And and yet, you, so you felt at risk. You you wanted to, what what... It's it's funny to me to hear that the assumption is that it's a, like a smaller step, like a you know you're moving from Star Wars, which is huge, into something smaller. But the murder mystery is broad; it's elaborate; it's it's lavish. I agree. You know? Well, also it's a crowd pleaser, and that was the thing that I remembered, I guess, from like for instance, like uh, Murder on the Orient Express and Death on the Nile, which were kind of like you can kind of see as of a piece back then. Um, this kind of the late 70s, early 80s phenomenon of the all-star cast, the big glamorous Hollywood production of a murder mystery whodunit. And um, that, again, that just, it hits all the pleasure buttons. There was the additional thing, which, which um, with this, which was uh, uh, setting it in modern day America. And that to me was kind of the thing that actually got me really excited. Was Interesting. So, so the, the, the fact of making a contemporary, was there any moment in the process of maybe writing it or the, the earliest seed of the idea that you were like, okay, maybe Canterbury had not yet done uh, Murder Near Orient Express, but would you have taken a swipe at the Agatha Christie verse? Uh, I had, I mean, having grown up, I had thought at different times of like, uh, to do a, how would you translate any Agatha Christie heads in the audience, like the twist in the murder of Roger Ackroyd, how would you translate that to a visual medium in a way that works? That could be really interesting. And, um, I'm a huge Agatha Christie fan. I, I actually, I, I love yeah, the Kenneth Branagh, I love his Poirot. I think it's hilarious. I think it's terrific. <laughs> so I really, I'm a junkie. I watch all, I just watched uh, See How They Run. I really, really love that. I'll just, I watch every whodunit that comes out. I love him, man. Um, but, uh, but no, that I guess to me, the, the thing, the thing that got me started on it was the murder mystery itself, like the, the whodunit, it's almost this perfectly engineered machine to engage with culture. Um, it's a ensemble and each one of the characters kind of represents a different slice of this little microcosm of this society. There's a power structure inherent in all of the uh, suspects and then there's somebody at the top who's everyone has like a motive to kill. It's basically this it's almost like a, a gun that's made to fire a bullet and it's and and uh, meaning it has a purpose which is to create a microcosm which can reflect society which is what Christie was doing back in the day yeah, I think yeah. that's that's kind of the thing that um, Christie is so her work I think is so enveloped in this fog of nostalgia at this point in, in culture because we've spent years watching these adaptations which are excellent and good and super fun and I love them but they're set in kind of the hazy past and um, 
and Christie wasn't doing that. She was writing to her culture. Her very first book, Mysterious Affair at Styles, when we meet Hastings, he's, he's home from the front, from the Western front with an injury. That's why he's at this country house. Mm-hmm. And he, she wrote it in 1916. She was, it's not like she was an incredibly political writer, but she was always engaging with what was happening in that moment in the culture, in where she was at. And the fact that this genre that's uniquely suited to do that Mm -hmm. had not been doing that for a long while, it got me very excited, the notion of what if we just unabashedly said, yeah, it's set in America right now, and we're going to just talk about it. I'm not going to worry about making it timeless. I'm just going to talk literally about whatever we're talking about in the moment. Yeah, so you've spoken also about how like murder mysteries are somewhat inherently about class. Uh, and that it is a vessel in take, um, sort of grappling to culture to some extent. I'll just leave that. Oh my God, we didn't need that I'll just one. leave That's that. That's fine. I'll yeah, just leave that. The leave that. Oh my God. Uh, I, so uh, it's a way to be political. It's a way to be engaged, to engage with the politics of the moment without it being inherently political. Is, is that sort of your, your general feeling of this? Well, I don't know. Yeah, I guess so. It is still political, but I mean, it's not, I don't know. It's a way to... I mean, the other enjoyable thing about it, it's a way to engage with engage with, with stuff that's happening right now yeah. in, in this comforting candy coating of a murder mystery. Yeah. And that's the other aspect of it. I love that candy coating. It's Medicine not, with the sugar pill kind yeah, it, of deal. Well, but it's not like that's a necessary evil to get some point across because that's not what these movies are at yeah. all. It's like you, you love the whole package. And so it's... Um, and so the comforting aspect of it, um, I mean, that's the other interesting thing. If you if you read like analysis of murder mysteries and you think about the times when the murder mystery is kind of sprung up in the culture, the golden age of detective fiction in the 1930s. Right. A response to very dark times. Incredibly turbulent dark times. Yeah. And if you think about what a murder mystery is, it's kind of the ultimate example of chaos is created by a crime and the paternal detective figure comes in and sets the moral universe right by the end by finding the truth and revealing it. And you can see why that was appealing in the 30s. You can see why that is on the very fundamental and you can argue about how healthy it is, how that's appealing right now, you know? Uh, you know, given the state of 2022, essentially, is what you're saying. For instance. Sure, sure. Um, would you consider yourself a class warrior kind of guy? Class struggle kind of guy? Is that the deal here? <laughs> Should I be sipping my drink? Like, <laughs> consider myself a class warrior? <laughs> uh, but are you? Like, this just... is apple juice, by the way. This is not, it's not apple juice. Um, <laughs> no, if I, yeah, no, I don't know. No, I mean, I don't know. We all are to certain extent. But look, we're all... Hyperconscious of the exact same stuff that's that's in the air and the culture right now. So yeah. So with glass onions specifically, and of course without you know going to the details necessarily, what were you? What did you want to grapple with? What were you, what was on your mind? What were you watching? What well, was interesting to you? I mean, I don't want to cop out, but I hope yeah, I mean, because I hope you guys will go see the movie and and put a lot of work into weaving all that stuff into the movie in a way that wouldn't feel like 
me just dumbly saying something. So <laughs> I'm hesitant to dumbly say something <laughs> to a microphone. I think it, it's it's also similar to the first one. It's not a subtle film. It's yeah. not something that uh, that that needs to be um, extensively explained. So I, 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 I don't know. I hope you guys will see it and just kind of you know and yeah, see but, it. Yeah, but short of the message, what will you kind of look at her out and go? And that would be that would be a fun thing to like say something or to, to build yeah. a story around what well i mean so i mean the big obvious thing is is edward norton's character in this is a tech billionaire yeah. and um uh and it's funny because i remember like a year ago having conversations with edward and both of us worrying oh god is this whole tech billionaire thing going to have played itself out entirely by the time the movie comes out <laughs> keep going keep uh, yeah going. so <laughs> you pick up uh so so that's an element of it, and it's it's um, you know, and and uh, it also the, the the movie is again it was it was sort of just giving myself permission to talk about the same kind of kind of tropes of society that Christie was doing back in the day, but yeah. doing those right now. So we have a YouTube YouTube influencers, and we have. SpawnCon Instagram models, and we have you know uh, SpaceX style scientist, glamour scientists, and we have like all the things that that are in the culture right now. It's like okay, let's let's put them in there. All of which, by the way, takes place on a beautiful Greek island. Yeah. Um, would would it be fair for me to pitch it to to friends who are who are you know mildly interested as it's Mamma Mia but with murder? <laughs> Yeah, please, my God. Is it too late to change the poster? That's fantastic. I'll oh, take yes. that, or the trailer. Take that to a heart. There were so many times on set where, like, Madeline Klein would be like, We're doing Mama Mia 3, right? Yeah, so, yeah she's so into it. Yeah. Uh, did you pick Greece? Like, what was, the, what was that choice? Yeah, so I wrote this in 2020. So I wrote this when we were all in lockdown. And so, I mean, Part of it, part of, there was a lot of things that went into choosing the setting, but a big part of it was just kind of all of us in that moment wanted to be on the beach somewhere in a Greek island. And so it was kind of like, okay, fade in Greek island. <laughs> let's, see if, <laughs> let's see if this will work. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and it did. So, yeah, there's, um, but I mean, you know, the first movie was very much like the in the tradition of the English countryside, mm -hmm. you know, uh, English country house, well, like cozy English murder. Uh, new English well, that yeah, but in the tradition yeah, yeah. of kind of yeah. that. So this, this uh, New England, yeah. Um, and this one though is, uh, I mean, first of all, I wanted to plant a really solid flag at the beginning for audiences that this was going to be something completely different than the first one. And yeah. I think that was um, a very intentional thing. I think there's. Um, so many film series are kind of uh, just building off the first one or like a continuation and just, just saying right up front, this is going to be the way these movies are, that every single one is totally different. Um, so sending it on the beach as, as opposed to in the New England fall, I think, was a, a first So the hard step cut with between that. the gloomy, uh, foggy yeah, it's uh, environs it, to a beautiful sunny... Brown and yeah. oranges and cut to blue and, blue and yellow is kind of as simple as that. But there's also, there's a rich tradition, um, again, any Christie fans, like there's a rich tradition of um, destination murders, yeah. you know, of... 
Evil Under the Sun. Well, the, the book was originally set in England, but yeah. the, the film, which I grew up watching like four times a day on HBO when I was a kid, <laughs> is uh, is set in this beautiful Mediterranean island. Um, or is it, it isn't Christie, but The Last of Sheila was a huge, yeah, give it up for The Last of Sheila. Yes, I thought you clapped, yeah. Uh, so The Last of Sheila, which I guess I'll, if anyone here doesn't know Last of Sheila, I'm, I've been, Please, please, I bang the drum be, be for this movie continuously because um, more and more people are discovering it but still underseen. This is a murder mystery from the 70s that was co-written by Stephen Sondheim and Anthony Perkins. Yes. Oh, I'm seeing faces that are the same <laughs> thing when I first heard it, which is like, what is this movie? It's star. It's the most '70s cast of all time. It's Richard Benjamin and as the lead, which automatically pegs it to like a, a window of four years when Richard Benjamin is the lead in movies. Uh, it's James Coburn, and you can see we take a huge page from the, from them with the setup of this. It's basically James Coburn is this asshole. Uh, like Hollywood producer who invites all of his friends to a murder mystery game on his yacht. And it's Diane Cannon is with uh, Kate Hudson's character. And this owes quite a bit to Diane Cannon, Cannon in uh, last of Sheila, um, Raquel Welsh, uh, mm. James Mason is in it. Uh, the, the who's who's of who's Ian play, McShane. Yeah. yeah it's, 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 it's incredible cast and it's a really, really fun movie. Um, yeah, highly, if, Nothing else comes out of this conversation besides a few more people see The Last of Sheila. This will have been, I will owe Vulture Festival a huge debt. Uh, very broad question, but what uh, did you take from making the first movie uh, into taking the second? What are the bigger sort of lessons that you, that you sort of talk in, took into making Glass Onion from the experience of making Knives Out? Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess the, uh, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, the thing is, it's not like there were any like hard one lessons in the first one because we kind of part of making the second was just we had such a good time making the first one. I mean, um, I get I guess one of the things was I th I think going into the first one I was very nervous because we were getting an ensemble of actors together, all of whom have before and could carry their own movie, and I guess. Um, I because I'm kind of a non-confrontational wimp. I was a little afraid. <laughs> is there going to be a lion, lion taming element to this that I'm yeah. not prepared Cat for? Or, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And um, and I guess the pleasant surprise from the first one is the exact opposite was true. Um, every one of those actors came into it. Um, ready to be part of an ensemble and ready to actually like really take joy in that. And um, it was true on this one too. I mean, everybody just, I mean, we were, you know, we were hanging out in Greece together, kind of, I think Catherine said like, we had a beautiful vacation in Greece with some fun people and also made a movie, I guess. It kind of felt a little bit like that, so. so with a bunch of cameras everywhere. Yeah, so yeah. fuck us, I guess. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Speaking of ensembles, I wanted to actually talk about like the construction of ensembles. Uh, but before that, uh, we should play another clip that ha that features Kate Hudson, um, and it's a it's a it's I think a really good example of like the different sort of auras, the difference of different kinds of celebrities kind of bouncing up each other. Look at you, Nick. Well, All right, yeah, I'm, I'm sure. a pretty like spiritual guy. Whatever. Could we could we roll that clip? I feel like we're on the Dick Cavett show. Let's roll the film. <laughs> 
Lionel, you are too sexy to be a scientist. And Claire? So cute. Aw, thanks, bird. You really try. I like that. You really make an effort. Well, I figured grease. And no mass? I can breathe again. Look at this pool. I think I'll go for a swim. Maybe I'll lay out for a bit. <laughs> You have four stars, four energies bouncing off each other. So when you construct an ensemble, when you construct an ensemble within a murder mystery, how do you, how does that process start? How does that process work? Do you like talk to your casting director first? Like how do you, or do you see the pieces of what each represents first? Well, I mean, it's, it starts with writing the scripts. So you just kind of write the characters and kind of figure out what their place is. There's the additional thing of kind of knowing that this is being built to be the type of all-star cast that we talked about with like those early Agatha Christie movies. And so there is kind of like the added pressure of wanting to give each one of them their thing and their moment and justify having somebody great in the parts like we have all these people here. But then once, um, once the, the script is done, yeah, I sit down with Mary Vernu, who's our casting director, and we kind of see who's available and... Um, just hope that we hope that we get lucky. I love, by the way, Kate. Uh, she plays a character named Birdie J, who's like a uh, she who was like a fashion magnet who now has uh, a line of like sweatpants that she hawks online on Instagram called Sweetie Pants, and um, she uh, Kate gave like the best description of how she plays the character ever which is that birdie understands every third word and if you watch the movie what just watching her, i think once i had them i had once i just watch her reaction shots to the other characters there's very very funny anyway yeah so and i assume that's a lot of like you're playing with the general like celebrity or the general sort of cultural context of each character of each actor each actress bringing it in kind of thing well not really no i mean that's the thing it's like um Sometimes, because, but I because think Catherine Hahn means something, right? And would you use what, Catherine it, what does Catherine Hahn mean? Tell us. The, bring the, us great, in. the great every person who's okay. also kind of grumpy, but, but great. <laughs> I'm gonna, you know. I want to get Catherine on FaceTime and have you explain <laughs> that to me. That's, that's awesome. Uh, yeah, but that's also, I mean, yes and no. That's also kind of like a dangerous game to play because mm. um, I don't know, because your perception of how someone's perceived could be different than an audience's. I think ultimately the game, as you have to really play it, is just to think of what's the best actor for each part. Right. And thinking on that meta level of trying to match up this, it's it's why like um, like we're on when we're on the press tour, there's a lot of inevitable questions about Daniel with his James Bond role, and um, he played James Bond in a series of films. <laughs> um, and um, whether whether when you're writing you're actively kind of like subverting or working against that and yeah. i guess the answer is always is for me at least always no um i think the way to approach it is just to always kind of come at it above board and and not let, let yourself slip into that meta level i guess is it like building a fantasy football team i get i don't know i never played <laughs> fantasy football so if go, you want go, to take go, 20 go. minutes and explain it to me i'll I'll give you the answer but i don't, I know don't think we have time but, okay. but yeah but i'll just sort of let that linger um so when it so when it comes to the actual uh, so with, with knives out with glass onion 
the actual mystery element is uh, a very it's like a watch you know it's, everything kind of works together do you diagram it out like how does how do you work out the mystery element um where, where I, do you start i do i'm also curious to hear whether my answer is getting more or less interesting as the as the level <laughs> of the glass goes down um uh yeah, I diagram, but I, I also, that's kind of just how I learned to write. So I diagram not just for murder mystery, in the context of doing a murder mystery, but every movie I've done, I start working very structurally. And the mm -hmm. first, for me, the first 80, sometimes 90% of the process is working in little notebooks, working out my outline for it. Um, and the outline isn't just the plot, it's it's the story, which... It takes into account the themes and the characters and and sketches for scenes and you know it's a lot of things. But do you use I, spreadsheets? I don't use no. I don't. I just I literally I use like the small note the moleskin notebooks and mm -hmm. all. Uh, I have a way to just like draw little arcs and write and do little like I actually posted the you can go back to my Twitter and search if if you want to be so bold and find the you one should I do it now before it gets nuked. I should yeah, yeah yeah exactly yeah well it's still around um, you can find me I'm Elon Musk on Twitter <laughs> you can search for me um, and uh, I, I posted the diagram I did for Knives Out and it's it, it is um, it's fun looking at it after the fact because it is the whole movie just laid out on this one line with all these little kind of um, cross hatches with like the names of each sequence. Um, but no, I need, no matter what I'm writing, I need to work that way. I need to know the whole roadmap before, um, before I start writing, which, which not every writer does. I've heard famously the Coen brothers don't, which is incredible to me. I was is just it like on, pure like stream of consciousness. I was I was just doing like a roundtable thing with Martin McDonough, and he said he just starts typing. He said that he wow. literally just starts feeling it. That's like a magic trick to me that blows my mind. But I um, I'm not that smart. I need to have like the 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 roadmap laid out before I can start typing, or I'll get lost in the woods. Are you a big planner? Like when you go on vacation, do you have a huge itinerary? No, absolutely not. No, uh, -uh. no. So you that's keep, a, you keep that. That's streets. That's for you know? work. Yeah, that's work the, cool. with a capital W. Yeah. No, cool, yeah. cool. Cool. We'll be right back with more Ryan Johnson and Nick Qua. Calling all female runners! It's time to lace up and join Team Milk. Since the 2022 New York City Marathon, Team Milk has sponsored female marathon runners nationwide, providing support and shining a spotlight on their unique stories, perseverance, and drive to go the distance. Why milk? Dairy milk is an excellent nutritional ad for both marathon training and recovery. Milk contains 13 essential nutrients, including high-quality protein, making it a crucial component of a training diet. Plus, it's one of the best beverages for hydration, even better than water. The same electrolytes that are added to many of your favorite sports drinks are found naturally in milk. And in 2024, Team Milk is taking the next step to empower female runners by launching the only women's marathon in the U.S. designed for and by women. Built to be accessible, empowering, and community building, the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Now back to Ryan Johnson and Nick Kwa, live from Vulture Festival.
So at the very start of this conversation, there's this kind of awkwardness of like, is it a sequel? Is it a follow-up? Where is it in the timeline? I didn't find it awkward. I found, I found it, it awkward. I found it's it like, entertaining. Well, you don't find it awkward. <laughs> I, it's very hard for me to write. Watching you squirm. <laughs> uh, so does Benoit Blanc, because he's the, he's the constant in, in all these films, in the films that will come in, in the past two films, does he, how do you think about it? Does he change as a character? Well, no, he, I mean, that's, that's one interesting thing. It's, it's, um, especially when you have a, an actor and like an actor and a, a movie star, which is kind of two different things in the lead part that's as magnetic as Daniel. I think it can be kind of a trap, um, to start thinking that the detective is your protagonist. Mm-hmm. And that's actually one writing trap. I think of the whodunit is to make that mistake. And I think, remembering that the detective always is at the center of it, but he's also outside of the realm of the human drama. And ultimately, I think that's why the first Death on the Nile is such, to me, that's like a high watermark in terms of um, in terms of adaptations of murder mysteries because it has such a solid hook um, yeah. of the love triangle and Mia Farrow's character and the, uh, the, the the kind of the, the the jilted woman who comes back for revenge. It's got such a great juicy hook to get you into it, um, and that's ultimately what you want to reach for. And that can't be the detective. The detective kind of has to be godlike and sort of outside of that realm, and kind of um, which is all to say that um, the detective always kind of operates according to the needs of the of the mystery i guess he he's, he is different in glass onion than he is yeah. in knives out but that's because he's intentionally kind of playing a different part in order to get to his ultimate thing of drawing these people out and solving the crime yeah but he's not quite a blank canvas he's not quite an audience surrogate either also right. amazing segue because we had asked you to bring us a scene for you to break down and you you brought us 1978's definite now uh, which were could, which I'm gonna sort of toss in the clip in a bit. It's exciting. But, uh, I so I have never actually seen the '78 Death of Nile until what? until a couple of days ago. Uh, and uh, first of all, amazing Maggie Smith suits. Yes, just unbelievable. But also, um, it's I I it's it's so it really holds up. It's so fun. And it a, is so goddamn fun. Yeah. yeah uh, there's yeah, travel. Yeah. There is there is random murder. Uh, there is there snakes. It's great. Uh, roll the clip. You are probably working on some other book now, madame. Uh, set in Egypt, perhaps? How thrillingly clever of you to deduce that, oh, Monsieur Porridge. <laughs> I am here to absorb local colour for my grand opus, Snow on the Sphinx's Face. Frozen enigma turns to incandescent love as this young English girl from Hazelmere, scarcely out of school, melts the barbarous heart of a cruel desert sheik. Somehow I don't think Monsieur Poirot is a very keen reader of romantic novels, Mother. Of course he is. Oh, Frenchmen are. They're not afraid of good, strong sex. Unlike, I might say, most of our leading lending libraries. We have banned Salome Otterborn for speaking the truth about men and women. But she goes on nonetheless. The truth, yes. The truth, it's so difficult to tell. Thank you, monsieur. Oh, 
Well, perhaps you would join me in a tango, uh, mademoiselle. It's a little exercise after dinner. Excuse me. Uh, <coughs> New tango, Colonel. Oh, poorly, I'm afraid, Mrs. Ottoman. Then I shall teach you to do it richly, as it was done in old Spain when it was known as the chica, that is to say, with a sensuous erotic dash. You have a sexy communist. You have Mia Farrow. You have Poirot, uh, you know, showing his acts of deduction observation. Uh, you have Simon. I forgot his last name, which I only just realized kind of looks like Bo Burnham. Uh, what? I know. Why did you pick the scene to break down? What does the scene sort of illustrate for you about like the heights of the Agatha Christie-esque uh, or uh, murder mystery? Well, all of those things, but I mean, really, the reason I picked the scene is two words, Angela Lansbury. I mean, my God, <laughs> incredible. And she's having so much fun in this part, and she is just a joy to watch in this movie. And she and David Niven, there's a great moment where <laughs> Poirot kind of like preemptively like excuses himself and, and takes the, <laughs> the other woman to dance. And there's just a moment of David Nimmin and sheer terror on his face <laughs> when he realizes what's about to happen yeah. before she sweeps him up. Um, so, uh, you no, know, it kind of and 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 Mia Farrow gives a tremendous performance in yes. this movie. She's so good. And, uh, I know, it's just delicious, man. It's just delicious. I mean, everything from like the the, the costume design to uh, the beautiful kind of like space that they're in, and every single one of those actors. I kind of wished I could pause and like look, like look at Maggie Smith, look at the tuxedo oh God, that she's wearing, yeah. man. Look at Betty David. Oh my God, it's incredible. Yeah, it's astounding. Um, so, uh, but you can also see the gears working. I mean, it, it's. Uh, yeah, the fact that you register that look from Poirot and what he's clocking and sort of, I love that period of the, that first like half an hour of a murder mystery where you're trying to do the math in your head of who's going to get killed and why and trying to outthink it. Um, and you can see all that in play here. But coming back to the real point, Angela Lansbury. Yeah. <laughs> is, is, is enough your favorite Poirot? Uh, Houston Off is my favorite Poirot. Yeah. Tell me, tell me why. 
specifically in this movie, specifically in Death on the Nile. This I, although, version. I, yes, this version. I, I love him in... Um, I do love him in in Evil Under the Sun, but it's a little bit more of an indulgent love. He went he's a little broader in that mm-hmm. movie, a little goofier, but I still do I still do love him in it. But I think this he he struck the perfect balance. And to me, when I read Christie, I find Poirot hilarious, and I guess that's the reason that I love Ustinov's take on the character is. Um, Although Finney is doing something absolutely crazy unto himself, and David Suchet has like a uh, uh, has a a sharpness to him and kind of like an eagle-eyed danger to him. I love the slight clownishness of Ustinov and how that keys into the kind of pompous self-inflation of, yeah. of that character. He quotes uh, he qu- he quotes philosophers. He he makes prognostications. Yes, uh, yeah, he steals yeah. food from other people's cabins. He's an incredibly funny character. So anyway, I I, I, just, I love Peter Ustinov's version. I get into fights a lot with Patton Oswald about this, who <laughs> is a big Finney booster. And every time I I, I bring up Ustinov, he's like, <sighs> yeah. So it's interesting because like in this movie, he's on vacation. Uh, he's a famous detective. He's he's wealthy, uh, and I'm also. It's like is the murder mystery always sort of grounded within wealthy spaces, or like within, within wealthy spaces, like places of luxury, places of spectacle. No, not at all. No, mm. no, no. So many of Christie's best work take place. And Murder of Roger Ackroyd, which we mentioned earlier, takes place in a small town. Um, no, it's it's the, like I said. This is one very specific flavor. Of what she did, which kind of got the glamorous getaway mystery, but mm-hmm. um, but no, she. I mean, that's the other thing about Christie is she, um, and that's the other thing that makes me excited about the notion of making more of these. If you look at Christie's work, I think there's kind of a tendency to think that she repeated herself, that her works are all fall under like a vague grouping of like a country house and the body in the library and the butler and basically you picture the cover of a clue board basically when you think of Christie and if you anyone who's a true Christie fan knows the exact opposite is the case that she was not just changing it up in terms of where her mysteries were set not even in terms of like the plot twists of like how she did the murders or whatever she was twisting and working and melding genres um you think about uh, you think about Endless Night, which is basically a gothic romance. You think about uh, ABC Murders, which is a uh, which is a serial killer thriller. Mm-hmm. Um, you think about uh, and then there were none, which is a slasher movie. Basically, she was essentially with each new thing she was coming at it in an entirely different way and finding ways to surprise herself and and surprise the audience also. So. So my colleague, Elson Wilmore, the folk critic, who was supposed to uh, interview instead of me, uh, she has this theory, which I believe she's going to write about. By the way, I read her. She's great. Um, that the popularity of Knives Out and Murder Mysteries and that construct of each movie standing on its own, having a sort of a, a, a sealed uh, mystery, a sealed arc, that it is a counterpoint, that is a response to... Uh, like essentially superhero cinematic universes in which it sprawls, everything relates to each other. Do you do you feel that that resonates with you at all? I feel like this is my opportunity to like be trending on Twitter tomorrow by saying something. 
Well, saying you might something be lucky shitty that about Twitter might not be around tomorrow. So that's true. Yeah. So what the fuck? So <laughs> I tell you my thoughts on Marvel movies. Let's do it. Let's do this. Let's drop in. No. Uh, um, I, I look. I I absolutely relate to the not specifically in terms and this isn't an indictment of superhero movies or marvel movies but just generally also you think about uh, tv um for instance and how um i'm actually i'm making a t- my first tv show right now it's it's called poker face it's with natasha leon oh, oh by the way we'll be here this weekend <laughs> um and it's basically you know it's 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 model it's a case of the week episodic TV show. It's not a serialized thing where it's one story over an entire season. You get a single story per episode. And it's Natasha Leone basically as a, you know, it's like P- Magnum P.I. or Rockford Files or Columbo. She is basically the, or Murder, She Wrote, um, she's the central character in it, but you're going to get a whole new cast every single episode, a new guest star, and that was for me as as obviously some of the best storytelling. I mean, look, look, Breaking Bad. I mean, some of the best storytelling that we've seen in the past, however many years, has been this long oh, form. Of which you directed three of the standout episodes. Right, right. But it has been, been this long form serialized. You know, it, it, it's phenomenal. It's not to take anything away from that. I feel like we've hit a point where streamers have come to think that that is the only form of storytelling that gets people to keep hitting play next and um i feel like there's a real thirst to get back to i can just drop in for one episode of this and get like a full story and it's not like a 10 episode commitment to figure out who done it you know and i don't know for me personally i i felt that pull um and so the notion of getting back to sort of self-contained. I also, I love endings. That's the other thing. I, I love endings and um, true endings, you know, and not just like dot, 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 question mark endings. And so um, uh, with movies, but also it's it's really fun having built now like 10 episodes of this show, each one of which has an actual ending. It feels yeah. cool, yeah. So what do you, oh, so actually, I was going to ask you about Poker Face because I'm fascinated by the sort of archetype of the Columbo-type detective, and then you have the uh, Benoit Blanc-type detective. In your mind, how do you theorize the difference between these two types of detectives? Well, I mean, the big dig- the big difference is a genre one. It's the how done it versus the who done it, and so it's um, uh, you know, in Columbo, and I'm sure everyone here is probably a Columbo fan, but if you don't know, they show you. The kill. The, the first act is always the crime itself. It's showing the killer, showing who done it and exactly how. Um, but they usually hold out one little bit of information, and then Columbo enters, and it's about seeing him unravel it and figure out how he's going to do it. And intuitively, you would think that's not interesting, and it's riveting. It's fantastic, um, and that's actually the the way we structure Poker Face um, hmm. is we do show the crime up at the beginning. It's a how done it as opposed to a who done it um, mystery, as opposed to Knives Out and Glass Onion, which are who done it's where you you are coming in through the perspective of the detective more or less. Um, you only have as much information as them, and again, more or less, and you. Um, you, the object is to kind of figure out who did it by the end. Although it isn't really, and that's, that's I, I guess that's the other kind of 
um, not trick, but approach with Knives Out and Glass Onion for me is I feel like being a big fan of the genre, I can say that it's a complete uh, it's a complete lie that the pleasure of a whodunit is presenting a puzzle to the audience that they could potentially solve. Um, I think the authors of Ellery Queen famously said, yes, we play fair with the audience if the audience is the most genius person who ever lived. <laughs> um, the reality is the pleasure of the story is the same pleasure as any story, which is what's making you lean forward and engage. What's making you, what character are you worried about? What are the dramatic stakes? Um, as opposed to making you lean back and stroke your chin and figure it out. A, a, a roller coaster as opposed to a crossword puzzle is, is, is what I like, is, is what I say. So, yeah, yeah. I admire how you definitely weaved without saying anything inflammatory about the Marvel franchises. <laughs> Fuck it, though. You know what? <laughs> uh, I want to talk very, very briefly about um, sort of your, your filmmaking sort of at large. So you've made a neo-noir, you've made a caper, you've made a sci-fi movie, you've made a Star Wars movie, uh, and you've made a whodunit slash murder mystery. You've made, you're making a, you've made a second one. What draws you to genre? You, you, you talked about your interest in specific genres, but what, the, what draws you to genres at large? Um, I don't know. I mean, they're fun. Uh, and they're, they're also, I guess what is, what's fun about them, to me at least, is, I mean, first of all, the fact that, um, you know, I, I probably like a lot of people here, I grew up watching them. And so I have a deep emotional attachment to all the genres that you, that you mentioned. Um, not just in an intellectual way, but in a, um, you know, this is the stuff that kind of fed my childhood, and so there's a there's deep roots there. Also, though, I mean, in an intellectual way, they give you a chessboard. Um, they give you and the audience a shared, defined chessboard. And especially playing with genre right now when audiences are so savvy, it's even mm -hmm. more exciting because I feel like all of us know so well at this point the tropes and the the way these th these things work and to me the benefit of that is that creates a dialogue that creates an underground dialogue throughout the course of the story between you and the audience of where you're uh, playing with that where you're playing against it um and that to me is a fun kind of not meta, but sort of meta conversation to have with, with the audience during the course of a film. Are you a big board game person? Because you speak as a... Bar game? Board game. Board also, game. you can play board games. I get bar games, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, not as much... I have friends who are super into kind of this new wave of, of board games. And uh, I've played a few of them, but generally my wife and I, we, we sit down to do them and we get 20 minutes into trying to parse the instructions and we kind of <laughs> give up. But, uh, I'm a big crossword puzzle fan and I'm a big uh, yeah puzzle fan in general. So When I think about genres and people's relationship to genres, uh, how they follow them, bend them, break them, I think about rules. Are you a big rules person? Uh, sure. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> it's like sounds tentative. I don't know. <laughs> um, in terms of story, yes. In terms of, I mean, I think that uh, in terms of writing, um, I don't know. I, I, I feel like the the um, in terms of in terms of genre, in terms of like the approach to the rules of it versus breaking the rules of it. Um, every time I've sat down to write any of any of these things, like these murder mysteries or a Star Wars movie or anything, it's 
it's always trying to get back to the essential pure pleasure it's like it's like you remember in tron when they drink the glow find the glowing river and drink it it's like oh here's the source you know it's a, <laughs> it's trying to find that with a genre which has had a lot of iterations and a lot of veneer put on it over the over many many years and it's trying to like with brick my first film it, it all came from me reading dashiell hammett and feeling like i i knew and loved film noir but reading dashiell hammett's books it felt like being punched in the stomach and it was trying to get to that kind of feeling that those books gave me um, or with Star Wars it was with The Last Jedi it was trying to get back to the actual feeling of being a kid and seeing The Empire Strikes Back yeah. and not the memory of it as an adult but the actual feeling as a kid it was fucking terrifying and it was like actually feeling like anything was at play and the good guys were losing and it was um, scary in the way that fairy tales should be scary fairy scary in the way that fairy tales as illustrations of rites of passage or different parts of life should actually terrify you because they represent kind of a child's perspective on these massive life changes that you don't understand um but are trying to um so anyway it's i'll do i'll a lengthy answer to it's it's yes i love rules but i love them to get to sort of really much more base pleasures you know so i'm guessing you're not a big jazz guy jazz yeah, <laughs> I'll, leave, I'll leave that for david chazelle okay. um <laughs> is there a genre so i think knives out sets you up to play with different genres within the murder mystery construct but uh, ha is there a genre that you haven't tackled that you really you would really like to like a oh, rom-com so or a sports musical musicals oh my god i would love to do a music what's, what's, your, what's your favorite musical Are you kidding me i mean i am a and i guess this isn't a spoiler because i've gotten to talk about it a little a few times but we actually i one of the great pleasures of this movie was both Angela Lansbury and Stephen Sondheim have a very small little cameos in Glass Onion. And there's, it's, I don't want to oversell it, it's just one fun little scene, but it meant that um, I got to actually, um, uh, with both of them, sit down with them and like shoot a little thing with them. And uh, Did you go to talk shop? Huh? I mean, a little bit, but it was just like 10 minutes. Mainly what I got to do is tell, tell them both. And um, was, I'm, I'm a big, musical theater nerd and Sondheim is you know is my guy and so getting to tell him what his work meant to me even like a fumbling way was was incredibly special what so. was the first ever musical you ever saw I mean the first one I pr ever saw was was probably Phantom of the Opera I think. <laughs> <laughs> shout out yeah, no shame I love it I actually love Phantom I've seen I will go see Phantom anytime <laughs> I've, uh, but I feel like when I discovered Sondheim and when I got into uh, and actually no I take that back Sweeney Todd there was oh, wow. a filmed version of Sweeney Todd that was on uh, like PBS when I was young that was the version with Lansbury and I think it was Lynn Carew in the, in the leads and it was just like a filmed version of the stage of the stage version and it was I remember that being like kind of my entry point into it and um, anyway yeah so musicals but there's so many I mean yeah I oh yeah, so, I mean, yeah. It's, it's 
there's entire different styles for you to draw from. I'm, I'm excited to see whatever musical you make. We have seven and a half minutes, and I have a bunch of rapid fire questions. If you're ready for that, let's do it. Come on. So, Benoit Blanc. Were there alternate names? No, not really. But I, I, I did. I feel like I owe like credit or an apology to my French tutor at the time, whose first name was Benoit, and that's where I took that from. But yeah, Benoit, Benny White. Yeah. <laughs> you call him Benny? Benny. Yeah, well. I would uh, not dare. <laughs> My colleague, uh, Rebecca Alter, asks, who would win in a fist fight, Benoit Blanc or Kenna Brennan's uh, Hercule Poirot? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, look, I got James fucking Bonds in that movie. I feel like we could take him. But Kenneth Brown has no lightweight, so I don't want to... Yeah, no, that dude it, looks yeah. like he would, you know, really, like shine in a bar fight there's an ongoing joke in glass onion where uh and a friend of mine michael lerman gave me this joke that it's like a pool party and and benoit blanc never wants to take off his shirt so he's like in the (laughs) pool in his shirt (laughs) and at some point where i thought this was very funny and i thought that'll be nice because daniel doesn't have to worry about like working out all the time he's like you know i just came off the last james Bond. like you know i am actually kind of buff right now right you sure you don't want me to take my shirt off and i was like Uh, I'll, I'll leave it a surprise as to whether he does or not. Um, Poirot is normally a light sleeper. Linda Drysdale, Drysdale in Knives Out is a light sleeper. Are you a light sleeper? I can sleep like I can drink a pot of coffee and fall asleep You're next a to sleeper. a jackhammer and sleep for 12 hours. Yes, my, my, my wife hates this about me. Have you ever I, suffered from insomnia? Yeah, no, never. Are you kidding? I could fall asleep right now. You guys want to <laughs> see that? Vulture you are fest? you are drinking. <laughs> okay, so in Knives Out, um, you know, Benoit is famous. There's a New Yorker profile written about him. It's my understanding watching the movie that a lot of the characters are aware of his fame because of the New Yorker profile. The byline on the New Yorker profile. What is it? Oh God, I'd have to go back and look. It was something pretty good. It was like it's Leopold Checker. What Leopold? Wait, Checker. Okay, so the or at least because I was like staring at the screen. It was so kind of blurry. I wanted to credit because I'm I'm friends with Alex Ross, who's the music critic for the New Yorker, and I wanted to just credit him. But the New Yorker has a rule that you can't like you can't you can't. And so I, I... Well, I think that's bullshit because you're about to see Tar and Adam Gopnik's fucking in Tar. Well, I'm going to have a word with the New Yorker then. Because, <laughs> yeah, all right. But it would have been Alex Ross. It would have been Alex Ross. Okay, yeah, I thought great. that would have been very funny. Uh, we talked about board games. Do you have a favorite board game? Um, yeah, we like Trivial Pursuit, I guess. We like Trivial Pursuit. We also, though... We got because we kind of were like, are we into Monopoly? Like we kind of like enjoyed that, <laughs> and we bought. Have you guys seen this version of Monopoly they put out recently? That's the longest Monopoly game of all time. Do you see this specialized version? They put one out where the purpose of this set is they've altered the rules so that the game will go on for like eighteen hours, and a couple of times we've sat down like. We keep getting pulled into it. We keep like saying, this is so boring and stupid. And then we'll have a night where we're just like, let's give like Ultimate Monopoly a try. And so, and then we'll quit after two hours. Anyway, sorry. What's the last great movie you've seen? I feel like what's really exciting is right now, this is like, there's actually a bunch, like a whole thing of movies that are coming out now that are 
fucking great and are really exciting. And well, it feels, what, was the, what was the last one that you literally saw? Uh, the last one I saw was, um, I mean, we saw Fablemans last night, which is terrific. It's so, so good. And just seeing like um, that last five minutes. Holy shit. <laughs> okay, okay, I haven't <laughs> seen it. I haven't seen it. So, okay, okay, so okay. what happens is... No, uh, uh, but um, uh, Banshees... Of of Inishira, sure, 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 and uh, <laughs> Colin Farrell and his eyebrows, absolutely incredible, and like just a kind of a, a, a depth charge of sadness that kind of lingers with you after you come out of the theater. Absolutely beautiful work of art. We're going to see Tar tonight. Actually, we're going to check it. I'm really excited to see. It. I need to see Triangle of Sadness. I've heard it's great. I haven't seen that yet. But I heard um, it's good. Everything, everywhere, all at once. I love this so much. This year. There's just so many good movies out this year. It's really genuinely exciting. What's a good or great TV show you're currently watching? You know what we got back into doing is watching Jeopardy every night. Oh shit! Oh the, my god! Who do you prefer? Well, Ken. Obviously. Okay. Right. I mean, I love we love. My <laughs> wonderful, but Ken is is incredible. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so, uh, but yeah, we've gotten back into it, and the tournament of champions is happening right now, which is uh, he says Jeopardy nerd Super Bowl. <laughs> so it's very exciting. Yeah. Uh, have you seen Andor? Andor. Oh, no, I haven't. I've been saving them up. Uh, so, no, I haven't gotten to dive in yet, but I'm excited that when I do, I'll be able to watch them all. It's I very keep good. hearing it's phenomenal. It's, it's fantastic. It's I cannot wait to it's watch it. It's a stacked it, yeah. year for TV, but I think yeah. it's my favorite thing all year. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. yeah so I'm, I'm very excited to sit down and binge them all. Yeah. What's your favorite conspiracy theory? <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so this isn't a conspiracy theory, but like, Somebody told me this, and it's probably apocryphal, that, that there was a guy like who was a consultant who approached the company that makes Tabasco and said to, went, had a meeting with, this, with like the head of the company and said, I have an idea. It's going to take me 20 seconds to pitch you. I'm not going to tell it to you unless you pay me, like, whatever, $10 million dollars. But if I tell it to you, it's a thing you can only do once that will increase your profits by X percent for all the years going forward. And they did it. They paid him to tell what it was. You're just going to end right there? Oh, I don't know. what. It would. Oh. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No. So what it was is, uh, so basically he's like, every, so they paid him. And he, so he sits down in the boardroom and he goes, Everyone like does the Pasco thing, and they have like either two or three shakes just that they do. What you do is you take the little pinhole at the top of the Tabasco, you expand it by just half a millimeter, <laughs> so a little more comes out, and so you're going to sell X more taba- Tabasco every year. This is your favorite conspiracy theory. This is the first thing that popped into my drunken mind. <laughs> I've had this was a. Uh, how do you feel? This is from Jackson McHenry, who's also my uh, colleague. Uh, how do you feel about Damon Lindelof really loving the fish nuns in The Last Jedi? Loving what? The fish nuns. <laughs> Wait, what? Damon Lindelof apparently really he loves, loves the, the fish, fish nuns. nuns. I'll take it. I will, I will take this opportunity to pitch. If anyone didn't watch the Watchmen series that he did, it's Excellent. one of the best things of the past decade. Um, it's absolutely phenomenal his Watchmen series yeah very last question and this is from Allison Wilmore fuck Mary kill famous fictional detectives oh my god (laughs) 
<laughs> oh god this is tough um okay so uh huck mary kill jesus uh well i would i don't know who i would kill um famous fictional detective this is a landmine this is not gonna go well this is bad um We're also the fact that the the uh yeah, I don't know. I guess I guess I would I would I would marry Mrs. Marple because she seems um, that seems like it'd be a nice kind of like country life. Sure. Just living with Mrs. Marple, <laughs> like or Jessica Fletcher, I think. Playing yeah. it safe. Okay. Or maybe I should fuck Jessica Fletcher. Maybe that would be. <laughs> I have a feeling she's kind of secretly freaky, and that could be like a really no. Or Sherlock Holmes, I guess, would be probably because I just. I just like Wait, read fuck it. Sherlock Holmes or probably because he's kind of he's got which, the like which Sherlock Holmes? Well, I I was thinking of the books because I just because oh, I'm right, a literary right. son of a okay, bitch. Right, yeah, right. Um, uh, and then uh, kill who would I kill? Oh boy, who do who do I? <laughs> uh, I would kill. I don't know. I, lo- I love all of them too much to oh, kill. Come on, Is that don't come dodging? Out. I can't don't come get my pussy out here. Okay, okay. Uh, you know who I. I God, jeez. You know who would be. So I don't know if you guys are familiar with John Dixon Carr, who's a. Okay, phenomenal. I'll use this opportunity. I don't know if I would actually want to kill this person, but it's a great opportunity to pitch reading more John Dixon Carr. He was writing, he was actually an American, but he spent a lot of time in England. He was writing in the golden age of detective fiction era, like in the 30s. He has a detective named Gideon Fell, who's currently like my favorite whodunit detective he's modeled on uh gk chesterton he's like this big huge massive man who walks on two canes and is kind of a total asshole and is just hilarious (laughs) very funny so um uh sure i'll kill him whatever i'll get me i get caught for it anyway so yeah it's fine ladies and gentlemen Fran johnson guys thank you so much for coming i appreciate it thank you thank you nick That's it for another episode of Good One. Watch Glass Onion on Netflix. Poker Face premieres on Peacock on January 26th. Follow Ryan on social media at Ryan Johnson. Ryan is spelled R-I-A-N. Good One is produced by myself, Jelani Carter, and Camila Salazar. Gavin Shrikashin did our theme song. Write a review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. Email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at goodonepodcast. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. Good One is a production of Vulture and the Vox Media Podcast Network. We're here every other Thursday. Have a good one. Welcome to Good One. Show about talking them jokes. Mm, son. Hey, 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 good one. It's a good one. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.